0: This is the Investment Intelligence Podcast by Allianz Global Investors, sharing knowledge about all things investing.
1: Hello, everybody. I'm your host, JP Vicente, and you're listening to the Investment Intelligence Podcast. I have a very special guest today. His name is Doug Rao and he has been a longtime champion of running successful businesses in a sustainable way with a sharp focus on positive outcomes to all major stakeholders. His career and contributions are many. He is of course well known for being the brain behind Trader Joe's incredible expansion from a nine store chain in Southern California to a nationwide retail success story here in the United States. He spent 31 years with Trader Joe's, the last 14 of which as president. He's currently a board member of Conscious Capitalism, which is a nonprofit organization focused on getting business leaders to rethink the way they run their businesses to make them more sustainable. And is also the founder and president of Daily Table, a unique nonprofit retail concept designed to bring affordable nutrition to the underserved in our cities. Now, Doug and I had an extensive conversation about the challenges we face today in terms of sustainability. We talked about rethinking capitalism, regenerative design, issues of morality in running businesses and much more. We also talked extensively about what investors should look for in companies when they're considering investing sustainably. And a quick hint, you've got to scratch deeper than just corporate social responsibility and sustainability reports. I am personally very passionate about sustainable investing, and I really enjoyed hearing Doug's insights and practical experience on this topic, and I am sure you enjoyed it as well. And since Doug does not work here at Allianz GI, my legal and compliance colleagues tell me that I need to let you all know that statements and opinions expressed by Doug Rao do not reflect the views or opinions of Allianz Global Investors. So now, without any further ado, Let's get right to it. Hi, Doug. Thanks for being here with us today. It's a a real pleasure to have you on the show. And before we get started, please tell us who you are and what you do. So I'm Doug
2: Rao. I'm uh, currently the founder and president of Daily Table, an innovative uh, retail approach to fighting hunger in America and our cities. Uh, using both recovered food and food we get at deep discounts to provide a dignified shop for affordable nutrition. Prior to that, I uh, spent 31 years with Trader Joe's company, was uh, instrumental in getting their private label program, then writing their business plan, how to expand, and then uh, brought them here to the East Coast back in '96, uh, and have continued to live here ever
1: since. Thanks, Doug, and and welcome to the podcast. I am so pleased to have you on the show. When we started this podcast last year, you know, we based it on the premise of discussing all things investing and how important it is to share points of view from both, you know, inside and outside of Allianz GI. And now, specifically, more than ever, we feel that understanding how to invest sustainably has become essential to everyone with a portfolio, from individual investors to large institutions. But the topic is, in my view anyway, both complex and somewhat unruly. I feel like it's complex in the sense that we have many layers to it, right? From individual components such as the environmental, social, and governance issues to risk analysis and mitigation to deployment across asset classes to impact investments. And unruly in the sense that we don't seem to have yet found an overarching formula, right? An E equals MC squared equation, if you will, to tackle the sustainability issue uniformly. So it often feels That a solution to one problem can be the cause of another problem elsewhere. So oftentimes it appears that we're tackling a systemic issue, which would in turn require systemic change, which, as we all know, is very hard to do, always very hard to do. So I know you have dedicated a large part of your career to researching, understanding and managing these challenges, including your work with the Conscious Capitalism Foundation, which I want to talk more about it later too. But uh, let me ask you a broad question to get us started, Doug. What's your assessment of the state of capitalism today? Are we on a sustainable path at all? It's
2: uh, a great question and a big question. Um, you know, it's interesting. In, in some ways, it's kind of borrowing from uh, Charles Dickens. It's kind of like, we're in the best of times, the worst of times. In some mm-hmm. ways, capitalism has shown in the last century that it truly can lift people out of poverty. Look at what's happened in China, and in India. More people, by turning their back on a central system going to, to a, a, a version of capitalism, they clearly have lifted more people out of poverty than any time in human history. Uh, from that standpoint, it's it's it absolutely won out as the economic system to to raise and have humanity flourish. At the same time, we have suddenly discovering that you know this successful model of uh, economic uh, vitality is eating the planet alive, so to say. That we're using up something on two and a half planets a year, and we are on a crash course that's not sustainable
1: at all. So what do you think is the way out of this, Doug? Where do we start? How do we drive change? Who should be at the table negotiating and making decisions at this point?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, from where I sit, uh, I think that, first of all, and I liked your setup in the very beginning, uh, that this really is a systemic problem. That, so we've got, we've got to take, first of all, uh, a systemic approach which mm-hmm. is the way you set this up, which I really like. So, in my opinion, we have to drive the change through a lens of we are part of an ecosystem, and that's both economic, social, but, but really environmental. I think we need, uh, we need all hands on deck on this. But I would say, when it comes to capitalism, that, that business has the resources, often the, that even government doesn't have, if it really puts you know its mind to it. It has the resources to do amazing things. And I'm optimistic or hopeful that certainly with the younger generation, uh, the millennials and the Gen Z and others coming up, that this heightened awareness of what's going on to our environment and the role the business can play will bring to the table the people that can can start to really have the conversations, that can change the parts of capitalism that are being practiced under short-termism. Mm-hmm. and ends up with capitalism, mm-hmm. uh, which gets so much of the negative and turns off so many young people and, and, and turn toward a true shareholder, uh, not shareholder, excuse me, stakeholder capitalism, which is the idea that, that there are so many stakeholders involved in, in a business. There's everything from your, you know, obviously your employees and your customers, but your environment is a critical part of this. And I think that any conversation around sustainability in business, has to take on a stakeholder environment at its heart. Because if it uses the old shareholder model, um, you're always going to have a conflict. You're going to have a dynamic tension that's unresolved. You're going to feel like every time you do something for the environment that uh, that isn't maximizing shareholder return, that you are, uh, you're, you're compromising. And I think that the stakeholder model says that you can get to win-win-wins for all of those stakeholders and have it be such that, your bottom line actually is better.
1: Interesting. And, and I think you mentioned quite a few things there that are sort of at the heart of the idea of conscious capitalism, and I want to explore that a little bit with you, and uh, just to make sure for those who who may not be totally familiar with the idea, a lot of it has to do with what you're just saying, Doug. Which is that conscious businesses, you know, must focus on integrating the interests of all their major stakeholders, not exclusively shareholders. And uh, the, when I think about it in practical terms, obviously that's a noble goal, but but it's often you know easier said than done, so to speak. So so, talk to me about your experience with this concept, both you know, hands-on with Trader Joe's and the Daily Table, as well as other examples from different companies and industry you've come across, Doug.
2: Yeah, sure. So, it it, it is one that is a uh, uh, an evolution and understanding for me that uh, that stakeholders are uh, not just shall we call it tools to be used for shareholder capitalism, which was, you know, my early idea was that, you know, of course you're customer focused, so you'll have a better bottom line, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, I mean, okay, I, I, I could understand that, but stakeholder capitalism says, no, it's more profound than that. And conscious capitalism would say that, you know, at heart, you, you start with that, that deep sense of purpose that is more than just simply making money. So with conscious capitalism, say it starts with that sense of purpose that's greater than mm-hmm. just seeking money. It's your why. It's your profound, you know, uh, uh, that. the second is that it is that orientation towards a system. You have a system of stakeholders, all of which are, are vital and, and important. They're your employees. You really got to treat them right. And if they do, they'll engage your customers. Uh, and then there's, you know, obviously the community you serve. There's the environment, et cetera. So there's a lot of stakeholders, here, including your investors. So... The, the other part about Conscious Capitalism that's really critical is it, it talks about leadership, is that it, it takes leaders that understand this concept and and support it. You can't just delegate this off to a, a part of the business and expect to then go about business as usual with with shareholder capitalism. And, you know, as, as, as uh, I've said before, that it's far more important how you make your money than how you give it away. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it's, it's, it's important with conscious capitals tries to look at the cradle to grave use of funds and your energies in an organization. So I think that, you know, for me, when it, uh, when it came to, you know, the work of with Trader Joe's and understanding that business and what evolved over the years, first, it started just as a product company, mm-hmm. like literally just product. And then are slowly awakened to the fact that, Oh, it's critical how we, you know, how we engage with our, with our customers. But, uh the other side, of course, is that as this evolved into an understanding of how important employees are, to keep them engaged, to treat them well, to give them, so you know all the things that so you have a lower turnover, et cetera, all of which, by the way, at the end of the day, and what we found, certainly at Trader Joe's, and what I found in when I was CEO of Conscious Capitalism, is that when you shift from a short-term, quarter-by-quarter bottom line orientation to truly understanding that that you're about your purpose, about creating goods and services, which people want, and treating your employees and your communities uh, in ways such that you create value for them as well as your shareholders, that better results occur, that you actually end up uh, having raving fans. And when you have raving fans, by the way, your marketing Hmm. costs drop. So, for instance, Trader Joe's marketing costs were were extremely low when I was there. Hmm. And uh, it was because frankly, our customers became our ambassadors. And uh, so I think that you know the, the results that I've seen are that if you can take a longer-term point of view,
0: mm-hmm.
2: you're able to get a clear sense of who you are and what you stand for. It's more than just making money. As I said, profit's essential, but you are more than just that. And that you're able to bring this to the marketplace with you know, operational efficiency, which is, of course, required for every business, uh, you'll thrive. And there's a lot of data on that to show that,
1: Well, you know, that's that's that makes a lot of sense, Doug. I, I don't mean to, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but that I'm interested in, in, in that point, the data. Uh, how do I know that this conscious capitalist, uh, you know, business can or is outperforming, uh, let's call it a shareholder value only business?
2: Well, I think that uh, it's a great question if conscious capitalism doesn't outperform, then it will be a footnote in history. And so, if companies that are following this don't outperform over the long run, then I think that uh, the concept of conscious capitalism will, will fail. And there's a, there's a bunch of data that is out there. There's a group called Just Capital, and they do a lot of uh, reporting on companies that are sustainable. Regarding uh, rankings and how they go with people that have a sense of, of purpose, the um, great places to work organization, of course, which has to do with you know how do your employees think about you and how you treat them. So, organizations that are the you know the 100 top places to work outperform the S and P 500 and the Russell 2000 by uh, multiples, two or three x, hmm. and. McKinsey did some uh, reporting on those organizations that take long-term points of view, not just short-termism, not only find that they have greater market capitalization, they earn more money, et cetera, et cetera. There is data out there that goes into organizations that are able to take these principles and put them to work, may or may not, over the short run, like a quarter or or, or a year, uh, outperform uh, the general market, but within any type of three to five, let alone ten to twenty, but three to five year range, they outperform the general market, and and that's critical.
1: Yeah, no that that indeed uh, makes makes a lot of sense. But one of the other things that I think it's it's really quite interesting is that we have seen a lot of I'm going to call it quote unquote competition. In the realm of ideas for reforming capitalism, right? And I'd love to get your take on some of them. Let's take, for example, Kate Rayworth, you know, donut capitalism, right? The concept there is that we, uh, that the planet really has an ecological ceiling that creates boundaries, boundaries to growth. Boundaries to pollution, boundaries to biodiversity loss, among other things. And our point is that those physical boundaries should offer no constraints to our creativity, meaning we must find a way to grow sustainably as opposed to growing just exponentially indefinitely. Having been a business leader for decades, Doug, what do you think of this concept? Is this a workable solution?
2: Certainly this idea that growth for the sake of growth. And we'll just all keep on growing forever. I think it's one, certainly with physical boundaries, that uh, we've come up against. And I think that, you know, some people that would, um, that would say that, well, but, but there's another way to look at it. For instance, as, you know, I, I think in uh, uh, one of the concepts is, hey, there's the idea of dematerialization. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, where did my record collection go? You know, where, where did all my where did all my printed photos that took all those chemicals from Kodak and all that film and all that stuff? I mean, we're all taking a gazillion photos nowadays. Guess what? It it's taking almost no economic resources, which would be environmental resources mm-hmm. compared to if we we're doing if we are having to print all these out, get them copied somewhere in the 24 photo photo mat and and all this stuff. So there's ways in which which technology, creativity. As she called it, has allowed us to dematerialize and still grow. So what I would say is twofold. One, yes, I think those restraints are very true; they're very real. But I also think let's not let's be careful that we don't then assume there's no growth, because there's been dramatic growth. I mean, look at what's happened to streaming. You know, look what's happened to social media companies. You know, um, all of those all of those companies that you know we now think of as the movers and shakers in the industry. To some degree, weren't even around until this technology came around. Whether it be, you know, uh, the social media companies or the the tech ones that are doing cloud-based storage, uh, you know, etc. Mm-hmm. So these are these are things which I think put different boundaries of growth. So cloud-based storage, for instance, has massive server farms that end up having tremendous energy and uh, you know heat uh, issues. Mm-hmm. So I think that you know each of these run up against a physical boundary. I like that concept.' It's one for us to, it's one to help root us and ground us mm-hmm. in the reality that we live on a planet and it has physical constraints, which maybe you know 100 years ago we didn't think about too much, but now we are. But I also think that on the other hand, we should not put constraints on our creativity and our ability to perhaps come up with you know, ways we can grow, and uh, find abundance that don't end up pushing our physical uh, that, constraints. I, mean,
1: I think that's a, it's a great point. Let me stay on this for, for just a second, because I, I think that Part of finding, right, this balance is also ensuring that our production systems can regenerate the resources being used. So it's not only like, oh, let's not create more junk, so to speak, but also the junk that we do have to create, maybe we can, you know, package it again and and reuse it. So I'm kind of paraphrasing Kate here, but she says that we have to start thinking about production processes that are degenerative by default into ones that are regenerative by design. And I find it to be an extremely powerful thought because it's a little bit of an arrow through the heart of the concept that more is always more, right? But in practical terms, however, based on your real life experiences running large businesses, can we really achieve that? Can you think of examples you can share with me?
2: Uh, Yeah, well, first of all, I I spent my career in a business that's one of the most physical ones you can get. food. pretty hard to digitize food um, (laughs) and uh, pretty hard to, you know, like uh, transport it around the world digitally. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very physical business. But within that business, within that business, there has been a lot of growth and progress. And by the way, uh, interesting little small data point, it will be impossible for the U.S. or for nations of the world to meet the Kyoto or other uh, uh, accords that have to do with climate Limits on Celsius change to temperature in the planet,
1: mm-hmm.
2: without addressing food, food production, food waste in our in our landfills, the methane that's being created there, uh, et cetera, are doing so much for greenhouse gases, et cetera, that until we address that, um, we're we're, uh, we're we're not going to get where we want to be. So uh, so in my own experience, I, I look at what's happened in the food industry around food recovery, around anaerobic digesters, around composting, around recycling, compared to when I started in the business, uh, gosh, 45 years ago now, mm. a little more than that, oh, we, we, are, we have come so far mm. in our sustainability that it would be, be almost unrecognizable by packaging uh, compostable uh, exists I mean we still unfortunately have way too much plastic but there is a growing and rapidly growing uh, part of the packaging business that's really around um, truly you know compostable uh, sustainable packaging so I think that in, in real life experiences you can come up against two things one is in some instances just the physical restraints of things are causing companies to look at alternatives second is that, they're getting pushed by the customer to say, hey, you know, are you recycling? You know, now mm-hmm. they're starting to say, hey, what are you doing with your food waste? What are you doing with all that wasted food? You're not just throwing that in a dumpster, are you? You know, like mm-hmm. that, that that's good food. I mean, let's let's get it back to use with either helping feed hungry people or, you know, put it to use with animals or, or anaerobic digesters. Let's do something other than just throw in a landfill and have it rot and turn into methane. So this sort of uh, pressure, I think, is is very real. So this is becoming, even in the industry that is a very physical, and um, quite frankly, a history with a lot of sustainability issues. Uh, this is an industry that is woken up to this and is trying and is struggling to find its way. Mm-hmm. So I think that there are, you know, there are a lot of. I think bright, shining little points of light, uh, so to say, we still have a long way to go, but there are, there are enough regenerative by design and people that are doing that to give me hope.
1: That's a super insightful, and and I think it's really interesting, right, to see how um, things that are currently taking place already, you know, in the industry are beginning to sort of make a difference. But on the other hand, there is like that physical boundary that's really interesting. And I, I know that you and I have talked about this in the past, uh, you know, what, what is a, what is a CEO to do when confronted with that kind of, kind of issue? I think it's related to also understanding your suppliers much better, right? Not so much that you are sustainable, but the people with whom you do business must be sustainable as well.
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, um, I think the CEOs today get a lot of pressure. They get pressures from their board, right, for performance, for this or that. They get pressures from the, you know, the community, from uh, from their customers. I, I think being, you know, uh, a CEO today uh, of, of a business is, you know, as it has been in the past, a very complicated one. But it's gotten to be trickier. It's, it's tougher. You know, that 40 years ago, maybe they weren't thinking about all the same environmental issues and challenges and are we lead certified and are we this and are we that. Uh, I think that that having said that, that, um, again, I'm encouraged that there are a number of CEOs. For instance, you know, one of my own heroes uh, is a gentleman by the name of Ray Anderson. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ray Anderson. He was uh, no. uh, the CEO of uh, Interface. Interface is one of the largest carpet companies in in the well, in the United States, and they do modular carpeting for you know offices and everywhere else. Uh, and he started off just as a typical businessman, stepped into that role, had no interest in the ecology of it. Started then realizing that they were one of the highest polluting industries in the United States. was carpet making. Hmm. I mean, they use so many chemicals and dyes and all the things to make auto weave and have the carpet stay up and do all this. And he decided that we are going to become a sustainable company. We're going to not only did he move the company to be not only a zero carbon, but a carbon positive Hmm. company. They literally, the more you buy from them, the better off we are in a way that took an industry that was, ah, you know, not known for its uh, sustainability and said, look, even this industry. Can become sustainable. You can become not only zero, but you get to positive uh, impact on the carbon footprint,
1: which yeah, yeah.
2: is pretty inspiring. So I, I look at that as saying that there are CEOs that it usually is led by by someone that's a leader who says, you know, um, I woke up to I woke up to a problem. I have had an awakening. Hopefully, what we find is that there are enough people that are waking up to the fact that they want their grandkids to have a planet. You know to live in that that will be healthy and flourishing. They want, you know, they they want to do right by their communities and 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 you know their their employees and and, and customers. And I think that, you know, getting on the path of sustainability in a manner that allows for you to still compete. Because if you know the marketplace isn't going to pay you much for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some companies, um REI and Patagonia that uh, have made obviously sustainability the heartbeat of their organization, and that you know they have found a large enough consumer base. There are enough customers that value that proposition that uh, they've thrived. I think that um, the power of the marketplace, from the standpoint of the the customer, is uh, probably of more influence than even the investing uh, space because that tends to follow where the customer wants to go um, mm-hmm. and the money will follow the demand where, there, where there's a demand there will come supply so I think that in this case and, and you know for instance it was very interesting uh, you know in, in, in not that long ago when it came to carpets we would have talked about not so much how it was produced from a sustainability but you know Tell me about were the were the people paid fairly? Was there you know sort of uh, um, sweatshop hmm. sort of you know it was a lot around clothing and carpets and just you know fabric and materials. There was a lot of concern twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, around sweatshops around the world. And um, and by the way, I think that's a very valid one. I think that no one likes to think that their uh, that their goods were produced under inhumane or or you know, um, uh, uh, difficult circumstances using and abusing people. Mm -hmm. I think we've simply broadened that now to then understand it's not just, you know, how they were produced, but also, you know, what's the impact? What's the footprint here? What's What's the legacy of this product?
1: Absolutely. And I think that brings another concept that I wanted to ask you about, which is the concept of morality and moral obligations to the discussion of capitalism and investing. Because uh, that is an issue that relates exactly to what you're talking about. Because there's one thing about the contribution to Um, a more sustainable environment. And there's also another one to a more sustainable society, if you will. And so, Gene Sperling, who's worked in the Clinton and Obama administrations, is currently the coordinator of the American Rescue Plan for President Biden. He wrote a book recently called Economic Dignity, and uh, it addresses some of these issues, quite frankly. He talks about creating a system that would close what he calls a quote-unquote dignity gap, so how does this concept jive with conscious capitalism, for example, Doug? And if we, if we were to see it through, what would it mean to investors and companies' bottom lines? I think that uh, any capitalism
2: that isn't fundamentally and systemically tied to a high sense of, uh, of morality or moral obligation is unmoored. And um, ends up, as I mentioned earlier, uh, becomes crapitalism or cronyism that I think that conscious capitalism attempt is to say that, look, capitalism as an economic system is one of the most ingenious inventions of the human mind on how to create and exchange value. What we also need to remember is that it was designed by Adam Smith at a time when there was deep sense of uh, a, a deep moral culture. And in, in 1776, when he wrote Wealth of Nations, I mean, he was in a very religious England, that it would have been unthinkable to have a Gordon Gecko uh, mm-hmm. uh, live and talk about greed is good and that more is better by itself. You know, these these would be unthinkable things because he was so he was living in such an ocean of Christian morality that, you know, greed was one of the cardinal sins. And he was a moral philosopher himself, wasn't he? And he was a moral philosopher, not an economist. And so therefore, what's happened is that particularly as we become more of a secular society, that uh, we see capitalism now, shall we say, um, unhooked from a moral obligation or from a sense of morality. And I think that that's uh, something that conscious capitalism addresses and says, first of all, there are inherent things about capitalism that we think adds some sense of morality, such as voluntary exchange compared to some previous systems, et cetera. But we need to do much more. I think that to a large degree, we have been able to tell ourselves this myth that we can somehow rise without everyone rising, that we can we can succeed and flourish without others in our society succeeding or flourishing. And I I I hope that you know the events of the last year and and the last several years have helped drive home the point that we need everyone to feel that they're coming along we need everyone to feel that they have hope that there is a better future for them and not just in america by the way but you know we need to make sure that that there is hope in in the nations of the world we deal with because we find out in those those nations when there's hopelessness economically bad things happen Also, world, just recognizing we got to bring everybody else along. We got to lift up and make sure that there is economic dignity, if uh, to use Gene uh, Sperling's phrase, which I like here, which is that everyone has a sense of hope. They have a a future. They have an ability to have livable conditions through their efforts. And I think that capitalism uh, isn't going to be successful unless and until. It truly allows for everyone to flourish.
1: And it seems to me that younger investors or younger people, especially millennials, it looks like that issue you're just talking about is much more urgent among that cohort of the population. And uh, the recurring theme when we look at polls and and poll results and research is that we hear that... uh, Folks are disillusioned with capitalism when they don't see that perhaps that level of uh, equality of opportunity, and not necessarily equality of outcomes, but equality of opportunities. So, what do you think? Why do you think that is? Is is that a positioning, like a branding problem for for capitalism, or is there something deeper going on here that we should do to make folks aware of the of the issue?
2: I think it is something deeper. I mean, yes, I mean, is there a marketing branding problem with capitalism? Uh, You know, absolutely. But as we've been talking, I also think there's some behavioral problems with a lot Mm -hmm. of the ways that capitalism is practiced, unmoored from, you know, any kind of sense of, uh, you know, value creation or obligation to the other components of a business. And therefore, I think the millennials are onto something. And what I would say is that, you know, millennials... And Gen Z's particularly are, are onto something here saying this system isn't working for everyone in the same way. We have to make sure there's equal opportunity here. And that uh, let's make sure that we that we start with that. Let's make sure that that um, we also, by the way, don't conflate capitalism and consumerism. That what's happened certainly in the last 40, 50 years, is a culture of of consuming mm-hmm. has Taken deep root in America, I do remember quite frankly that when 9/11 happened, one of the first things that George W. did was they want to keep us from shopping. Everybody go out and shop, mm-hmm. and that was going to be the way that we fought terrorism by going and buying stuff. Uh, it is so deep in us that I think that millennials and, and others are starting to rebel against this. Wait a minute, you know we're we're using up the planet. It's not really sustainable. I don't want to define myself by just having more things and, 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 and et cetera. And I don't want to be part of a system that feels like it's uh, one not making the world a better place, and two uh, is not creating fair opportunities. So I think that you know we need to find, and I think that there are models out there uh, that will, can demonstrate that that value that capitalism brings as an economic system which is profound and powerful. And has lifted so many people out of poverty, as I mentioned earlier, can also be utilized to find solutions and to work with uh, societies and, and people so that we can flourish without destroying the planet that we live on. And I think that it it is going to take a mental mindset, and I do think it's it's something much deeper that's going on. It's going to take a shift in the way we relate to uh, business and we relate to business's role. And the environment and i think that uh it's more than just a branding problem
1: another kind of recurring question that we hear a lot from folks we talk to is it's how do i know to you know what to look for in a company if i want to invest sustainably and we know of course that more and more companies now publish corporate responsibility social responsibility reports sustainability reports but those, while important, of course, they can oftentimes feel a little bit too canned, if you will. So, Doug, what should a sustainable investor look for in a company beyond those standard reports?
2: Yeah. Well, first of all, so those standard reports, uh, and I think we're going to be seeing those those reports continue to grow and mature, and um, particularly as a market forms among uh, the investing community that says we want more robust reporting on this I think we'll see it um, in the same way we've started to see that you know you've got to record CEOs pay to uh, median worker is now required along with that I would say that if you have a company that you feel that their CSR quote their ESG uh, is not integrated throughout the whole company that is not in other words they haven't metabolized that culturally, that it's simply, you know, great in an annual report or for a press release, but you don't feel that they're that they're living it. I, I think that's one one worry. I think that if you have a top management, if you have the CEO who is not aligned with your vision of sustainability, I think that's problematic because you know it starts at the top. I, I think that the you know the other side is that, to me at least, it's also around uh, how they're relating with and how they score on the other things besides just the the standard sustainability issues. A company that's going to just simply focus on sustainability but not provide a diverse or an equitable you know an inclusive environment, or is not scoring well on great places to work. You know, they're not treating their people well, they're not engaging well. Or they are, um, you know, when you look at the various ways in which, and there's lots of reports on this on how customers rate them, you know, how do how do they treat their customers? Mm-hmm. These to me are all parts of what makes for a really good sustainable company. Because sustainability here is of of many types. There's the ecological sustainability, and then there's the type that says, are they providing uh, Sustainable living for their employees. Are they providing uh, their, their customers with an experience that uh, values them and 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 what they and what they care about? The, you know, these are all intangibles. They're they're ones which I think we're going to see reports start to focus on and start to look at. And there's some coming out that are that are still a little a little loose that I've seen. But I am I am myself personally very encouraged that were one redefining uh, sustainable to be a little broader lens and to be more systemic. So simply if you recover, if you, re, you know, that you're a, uh, 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 we recycle all of our you know materials doesn't make you a sustainable company anymore. You also got to go upscale to what are your supply chain doing? So you get all this product and you yourself are sustainable. But are you asking your suppliers? You know, what's your relationship with your supply chain? I think that's really critical. So, I mm-hmm. think it's it's important that, that you look at a company that doesn't just four wall its sustainability to themselves, but then looks at everywhere we touch. Are we helping our communities become more sustainable? As our supply chain, are we helping them? Are they becoming more sustainable? Uh, et cetera.
1: Doug, let me also uh, ask you about sustainable finance, because that's another part of the coin here. You know, we're going to need money to finance some of these changes that we're talking about here. And we've seen that total issuance of sustainable debt has increased quite dramatic dramatically recently. Now it's surpassing, I believe, a trillion dollars for green social and sustainable uh, bonds. And um, although one Trillion dollars looks like a lot of money. It's still sort of a drop in the ocean when compared to the total global outstanding debt of 280 plus trillion dollars. So, what are the trends that you're currently seeing in the sustainable finance space? And and what do you think? um, uh, What do you think? How do you think they'll evolve going forward?
2: Well, now we're going to enter into the realm of strictly opinion, since I am unburdened by facts. Uh, not having uh, spent my career in the finance industry, however, what I will say is certainly from the boards I sit on, certainly from the work I've done with the organizations in conscious capitalism, it is clear that there is a there is a wave building. What we're seeing is we are seeing a trend about people that are coming to recognize that you can't get to sustainability without investing. A lot of a lot of the things about sustainability are longer term. A lot of sustainability issues, almost definitionally, require investments and require time. So, I see sustainable finance, particularly if it's really smart money and not dumb money, uh, that it really is investing with a uh, longer term and with clear definitions on what sustainable is, I think that's it's, it's critical. Uh, I, I think that it's going to be something that I would think and I would hope we're going to see a lot more of.
1: Thanks, Doug. This has been a lot of fun, a lot of food for thought. But before I let you go, we have a tradition here on the show. Every guest always shares with us a cultural recommendation. That could be a book that you're reading, a movie that you've watched, a place you've visited, anything really that you found inspiring and that you're, you would recommend to others. So
2: one of the things I would really like to recommend is the documentary Seaspiracy which is a pretty chilling uh, state of the oceans today. I would uh, uh, ask for your uh, forgiveness to then have a second one, which is a, a book I've been reading that's deeply researched. I like it a lot. It's called Fewer, Richer, Greener by Lawrence Siegel. And it really is about the prospects for us as a people in an age of abundance and what we can do with our creativity and our technology, et cetera, to help us live a more sustainable Way without feeling that you know we're doomed and that the future will be some myopic Blade Runner uh, future. That it really is a hopeful, optimistic view. So I like to balance those two points of view, ground myself in some realism, and then hopefully have uh, a an optimistic point of view, which I think is what conscious capitalism would provide. It's what uh, books like Fewer Richard Greener provide.
1: I have a recommendation as well. Mine today is a new documentary called Breaking Boundaries, and it's available on one of the major streaming platforms, and it's the latest documentary from David Attenborough. And it's primarily primarily based on the research done by Johan Rockström, uh, who's a Swedish academic who has a huge body of work on planetary boundaries. So, we talked a lot about planetary boundaries here during our conversation, and although so it's a concept that has been around for some time, it's particularly useful to understanding the complexity and the interconnectedness of the issues that we're currently facing with sustainability. And with that, I'd like to thank you, Doug, once again, so much for spending time with us today. And as always, thank you all so very much for listening. Stay safe, everybody.
2: Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you very much for listening. A quick reminder that you can subscribe to the Investment Intelligence Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on your preferred podcast platform. It really makes a difference. Once again, thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on June 15, 2021.
0: Investing involves risk. The value of an investment that the income from it will fluctuate and investors may not get back the principal invested. Past performance is not indicative of future performance. This is a marketing communication. It is for informational purposes only. The information contained in this recording does not constitute investment advice or a recommendation to buy, sell, or hold any security and shall not be deemed an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. The views and opinions expressed herein, which are subject to change without notice, are those of the issuer or its affiliated companies at the time of publication. Certain data referenced are derived from various sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy or completeness of the data is not guaranteed, and no liability is assumed for any direct or consequential losses arising from their use. The duplication, publication, extraction, or transmission of the contents, irrespective of the form, is not permitted. This recording has not been reviewed by any regulatory authorities. In mainland China, it is used only as supporting material to the offshore investment products offered by commercial banks under the Qualified Domestic Institutional Investor Scheme pursuant to applicable rules and regulations. This recording is being distributed by Allianz Global Investors and its affiliates. For a complete list of affiliated entities, please visit AllianzGI.com.